I'm Father Mitch Paqua, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at sacred scripture, but through the lens of the apostolic tradition, the tradition that goes back to the apostles, okay? And we are today going to have a mailbag show where we answer a lot of emails. We're backed up in emails, and I love trying to answer as many as I can, but, you know, in the other shows, it's sometimes difficult. So we have taken your comments, and you can continue to send them by email if you write to Scripture and Tradition at EWTN.com. Uh, of course, you can also follow us on Facebook and YouTube, and we'll try to answer as many of your questions as we can. In addition to the regular process of trying to go through various passages of the Bible. So, let's take a look at some of the emails that I have not been able to get to. First is from Susanna. She says, Hello, Father. My fallen away Catholic relatives believe in the rapture, and I was wondering about the verses in Matthew 24, verses 40 to 42. So let's read those first, okay? Because it's, she says, it seems almost like the rapture idea of one person being taken and the other left behind. Can you please explain? Susanna, first of all, what does it say? Again, the principle is that we always look at the scriptural context. And our Lord is teaching about the end of the world at this point. And it says, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One is taken, one is left behind. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One is taken one is left. Watch therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So it's about the end of the world. And the rapture doctrine is, I, I don't know what kind of rapture believers your relatives have become, because there are a variety of theories about the rapture by those who hold the rapture. First of all, the word rapture is not in the Bible, and this doctrine was invented in the 1850s. Nobody taught this doctrine prior to that. The most common form of the rapture theory is that our Lord will protect his people from suffering. I listened to a lecture once uh, 
And the man teaching it said, even if a nuclear bomb falls on your head, it will not even singe your hair because the Lord will take you out of there. Well, you know, that's, that's not in the Bible, okay? And this, this is what they call pre-tribulation rapture, that before the great tribulation at the end of time comes, people will be taken away from the earth. The right, uh, that is, those who are saved will be taken, and some will be left behind and given another chance. Now, again, that's not what our Lord is talking about. Do you see that I'll leave them behind and then just let them go through tribulation? That, that's not there. So some people teach that, uh, and this is a smaller group, that the rapture will come in the middle of the tribulation. These are called mid-trib. So you have pre-trib, that is pre-tribulation, mid-trib, middle of the tribulation, uh, that is all the suffering at the end of time. And then you have a third group that's even smaller, because it's really not a popular doctrine, um, of post-trib, that people will be raptured after the tribulation. Now, Catholic doctrine is that there will be great tribulations. The scripture, our Lord talks about it in this passage, and it's also addressed in the book of Revelation and in St. Paul and 1 Thessalonians 4 and other passages dealing with the end of time. The end of the world will not be um, something, uh, you know, that was, is going to happen nicely and smoothly. Uh, for instance, you, you have the theory proposed in the 1950s that we will evolve into the resurrection. This, we will evolve into the time after the end of the world. And that theory was uh, written down in the 40s and 50s by Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, but became popular when his books were translated into English in the 1960s. That's, that's also not in Scripture. That's why there was a warning on his writings, because it was something that is not in Scripture. He didn't know how to deal with things like original sin. He didn't deny it but he just didn't fit it in. And these other doctrines were developed by a lawyer from England, I believe his name was Darby, who came over to America and pushed it here, and it, and it took more of a hold. Uh, and so the number of Bibles that have all these passages to highlight the end times. And we, on the other hand, say, look, at the end of time, our Lord will come. There'll be great difficulties and persecutions. That's the part of the tribulation. There'll be wars and catastrophes. Our Lord says that, and Revelation says that. So it's not going to go smoothly. 
And we see in Revelation that people are still suffering persecution during those tribulations as those plagues are there. So the idea of being raptured out before the tribulation is not there. It's going to be when our Lord comes at the end and everybody will see him, as he says, the way you see lightning from the east to the west. And he will then judge everybody. The righteous who do, and again, the book of Revelation is what says those who do good deeds as well as have faith, they will be taken up to heaven. And the wicked will be cast into hell. Purgatory won't exist anymore, and there won't be any other chance or anything. That is the end of time. That's when the story of the universe is done. And so it'll just, uh, we'll just go on, um, and, you know, in eternity in heaven. But the idea of the rapture is not mentioned in Scripture. And it doesn't teach, these people have pulled these ideas together um, on their own, but they made it up. So um, I don't know how you convince people uh, about this, but I would recommend that you take a look at a couple of books. Uh, I think they're available at EWTN uh, Religious Catalog. One is by Paul Thigpen. Uh, dealing with the rapture, and the other is by uh, Carl Olson. And there, there's another one, too. I can't remember the author off the top of my head. Um, but take a look at some of those books. These were people raised in churches that believe in the rapture, and they did investigation, and they point out in far more detail than I do um, <clears throat> the uh, failures uh, Olson was one of my students, and Paul Thigpen is a friend of mine, and uh, the other uh, author is, uh, I've known him for a number of years, but it just slips my mind. It's the problem having old people on TV. All right, let's take another email. This is from Jack. Hi, Father, I've heard your video about God fully man and divine. Can you please help me understand the significance of the faith claim that God is fully human and divine? Thanks, Father, and God bless you. Well, Jack, a couple things about the, uh, you're asking about the significance. Remember, there's, first of all, the evidence of uh, Christ using divine titles for himself, saying, I am, when he walks on the water, he says, fear not, I am. Remember, that is the name that the Lord God gives to Moses in Exodus 3, 14 and 15. Tell the people of Israel, I am sent you. That is my name. So our Lord calls himself that. And when he repeats it twice more in chapter 8, it says, I am, before Abraham came to be, Ginatai, I am, ego eimi. He says, I am, and the people knew exactly what he was saying. And there are a number of other passages 
uh, that he used the, uh, John 10, the Father and I are one. We are two different persons, but we are one in being. So he claims to be divine, but he also claims to be man, as we just read in Matthew here. He calls himself repeatedly the Son of Man, which is also a title for the Messiah in Daniel chapter 7, and he's saying he's fulfilling that role as the Messiah, but he's also fully human, and he took flesh in the womb of the virgin. So this is, you know, uh, key that we see the evidence in Scripture that he's fully God and truly human, fully human being. And he weeps, he eats, he gets hungry, gets tired, um, has fear, all these things. This is part of being human, and he experienced the fullness of humanity. Now, what's the significance? Because that's your specific question. The significance is this. Human beings sinned against God, and we are created as fallen. Uh, we come into being. We were born as fallen human beings. We were created without original sin, but our ancestors fell into it through disobedience, and they offended God. And the first principle for understanding why it's necessary that Jesus be God is that the offense takes its seriousness from the one you offend. So if I were to get into a brawl with somebody in my audience here, uh, that would be bad. I should go to jail, right? Unless I'm in Los Angeles or some of these other cities. But, because that's, actually, I should go to jail for doing that, but in some cities they're not arresting people um, for various crimes. But you should go to jail, okay? And that would be bad. And I should have a criminal record. But if I try to threaten or actually harm the president, I go to federal prison for a long time because that is a federal crime because of who he is. Whether you like him or you don't like him, that is irrelevant because he's not Joseph Biden. He is President Joseph Biden. And certain federal laws apply if you tried to harm or threaten the president. You may not do that. And this is something that is a federal offense. The seriousness of the offense comes from the person you offend. It's the same act as I might do to somebody in a local bar, but the person changes the depth of wrong. He's of a higher status. And when we offend God, the offense is infinite because God is infinite. Just like offending the president is a federal crime, not a local crime, so also is offending God an infinite crime. Now you see the problem. We humans are finite. We're limited. We cannot make up for our sins against the infinite God. We can't.
So, infinite God becomes human in order to save humans from their sin. This is key. But it's also, God didn't commit the sin against himself. We did. So it must be a human being. And this is why God becomes man. And by the way, this was predicted in Ezekiel chapter 34. Read over it, especially the second half of that chapter. You'll see how the Lord God says, I myself will shepherd my people Israel. And then a few verses down it says, and my servant David will shepherd my people Israel. How can that be? How can that be fulfilled unless God himself becomes a descendant of David? That's why it's so important that the angel Gabriel tells Our Lady that her son will sit on the throne of his father, David, because she comes from the house of David. Okay? So that's why that's very important. It's essential to understand this. If you want to go into um, great depth on this, there is a book written by St. Anselm back, I think, in the 11th century. And St. Anselm wrote a book called Cur Deus Homo. Why did God become man? Cur Deus Homo. And you'll see that theory laid out more completely than I just did now. Okay? And you can get that in English. And pretty sure you can get it from EWTN.com in our document library. All right, we have another email from Victor in California. Dear Father Mitch, could you please explain what it means to be scrupulous? And is it considered a mortal sin? Thank you for your program, Victor in California. Scrupulosity is something that's a sin, and it can be a venial sin or a mortal sin. What is it about? Being scrupulous is having this worry um, and it happens often that, um, well, you know, I confessed my sin, but, you know, I'm not sure I confessed every bit of my motives for doing it. And, you know, um, I, I might confess some sins against lust, but I, I didn't mention that I was also angry at the same person I was lustful towards. And I wanted to get revenge or somebody I gossiped about and, and I wanted to get revenge on them and, um, and let's, you know, I stole this because um, they had stolen from somebody else so I thought, and, and I didn't mention all my motives. You, know, you, you keep picking at every aspect of the sin and thinking that God did not forgive me because I omitted some component of my sin. That would be an example of scrupulosity. And it's also going through life constantly worried, well, I didn't have a pure motive in trying to help the poor. I was also looking for them to thank me, and so my, my good action is bad. And this is scrupulosity. 
and lots of people suffer from it, okay? Um, sometimes not enough, because some people just go ahead and sin. The sinful component of this is, first of all, pride. Well, there's such a high standard for me. I know other people are sinners and they get forgiveness, but I have a higher standard. So I have to have absolute perfection. That's one of the underlying sins in scrupulosity. Secondly, it's a lack of faith that, you know, God can't forgive me unless I do everything absolutely perfectly well instead of recognizing the way most parents do. You know, I would make little pictures and my parents were smokers, so I made ashtrays over at a crafts class at the local uh, public park in Chicago. And I would do that. And quite frankly, I was a terrible artist and a very poor craftsman. But my parents said, oh, thank you so much. That's really nice. That was really ugly. But they accepted it. Now, my parents could, and I helped me overlook my own flaws uh, and go on, but eventually learned to stop trying to paint pictures and stuff. Uh, but the, uh, so I don't do it anymore. <laughs> but, the, but the reality is God is even more accepting than our loving parents. And we need to accept that he understands our limits. That's an act of faith. And so you also can sin against faith as well as commit a sin of pride by being scrupulous. And so you say, and then some people say, well, now I'm scrupulous about being scrupulous. Cut it out. Relax. Let God love you. Keep working to improvement. It's not that you're all okay, you still sin work towards improvement, but let God accept you with your limitations and weaknesses, your humanity, in other words, and move forward with God. So that's a key thing. All right, I'm going to take a break. We'll come back in a couple of minutes with more of your emails, so please stay with us. Right. Welcome back. We are going through emails today. This is a mailbag day uh, to try to catch up with emails that we're way behind on. So this is from Dave in Ottawa, Illinois. Dear Father Mitch, the Gospel of John is so beautifully written. I was wondering about the two different writing styles between the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. Could they have been written by different people? Yeah. You know, there, there, there are two possibilities. Um, I would just say this. Uh, the Gospel of John uh, is often used in 
our Greek classes, when you're teaching New Testament Greek, the Gospel of John is used because it has fairly simple vocabulary. You know, it's not um, as diverse as, say, St. Luke who was a medical doctor and he had a very wide vocabulary. And same with Acts of the Apostles. There's a, that, that takes longer to translate because there's so many words, that nautical words when they're on their journeys. So, you know, th that's very, but John has a, a more limited and fairly simple uh, vocabulary. And his sentence structure is very straightforward. And I, you know, I grew up with grandparents from the old country and, you know, I've heard lots of people speaking English, you know, as a second language from a number of languages. St. John reminds me of someone who is uh, writing the gospel in Greek as someone who knew the language and knew it correctly at a fairly basic level. That, that's how he reminds me. Uh, and I, I sense that uh, I'm, I do something similar when I speak on some other languages. I have a lot more basic, simple um, grammar and structure of the sentence as I was taught in grammar classes and Arabic and other languages, but I don't have poetic flourish because my, my language skills are not that you know, refined. In, in a language like Arabic. So this, that's how I read John's gospel. Second language for the writer, but he knows it and he knows how to do correct grammar. Great, great book to learn grammar from. The book of Revelation is not quite as, as clear. This is definitely written by someone for whom Greek is a second language. Um, and there are some clumsy expressions, partly due to the fact that he is writing down visions. These are not literary uh, inventions. Whoever wrote the book of Revelation had these visions, and they're trying to put a vision into words. So there's that difficulty. Also, instead of using the Greek Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, the book of Revelation is often translating directly from the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament. It's not translating from Hebrew usually. Most of the time it seems, according to people more uh, scholarly about the book of Revelation than I am, they say that they're using uh, the Aramaic Old Testament. Um, known as the Targum. That's what they're using there. So, um, and then translating it into Greek. So those are extra uh, complications. But it, the grammar isn't quite so straightforward and not quite so consistent as in the Gospel of John. So there are a couple possibilities. One is that it's a different John, and that's held by many people in the early church who spoke Greek as their first language. So they understood the difference in style. And they thought that it was a different John. And John is a fairly common name. Yohanan means the Lord is gracious.
So it was a fairly common name. Um, the other possibility, uh, for those who think that it's the Apostle John, is that he used a secretary for one of them and not for the other, okay? Or may have used two different secretaries for each one. Uh, we know that uh, St. Mark was called St. Peter's amanuensis, or secretary. So people, use, and Paul mentions that um, he had a secretary writing his, like Romans, he mentions him by name, and he even puts a little greeting of his own in there. So people use secretaries to write quite frequently. They would dictate and write. So um, this, uh, either, we're not, I'm not sure of what that would be, but I think the stronger consensus is that it's a different John, okay? So that would be that. And then we have here from Lisa. Hi, Father Paqua. You mentioned that we should meditate on the Word, that is the Word of God, sacred scripture. But what if we're reading the book of Revelation and we don't understand it? How are we supposed to meditate on it? Lisa, here's what I do. There is a lot in the book of Revelation that I don't understand, and that's fine. I'm comfortable with my lack of understanding. But I do focus on the parts that I do understand. And I'll try to take a look at the various references. For instance, in chapter 1, where it talks about uh, Christ and, and says, they shall look on the one whom they have pierced. And to take a look and see that the mention of that in John's Gospel, chapter 19, at the end of chapter 19, the piercing of our Lord's side. And see, that's why there's some kind of connection between John's Gospel and the book of Revelation. So you can see a number of links, also differences of style. Uh, but you, connecting it with John 19, and the soldier piercing our Lord's side. And then you can also take a look uh, at toward the end of chapter 1, which is the only description of the appearance of the risen Lord Jesus. The only description of Christ after the resurrection is given there. And there are a number of other teachings that you can meditate on in the book of Revelation. And, uh, and you don't have to understand every single thing. C.S. Lewis had a great point about the book of Revelation. We might be able to understand it better as those events begin to unfold. If we're confused about it now, that's okay. But it may be something written for the people who are around when these events happen. And so let them interpret that when it happens. But I can certainly learn a lot about Jesus Christ. I can learn, for instance, in John 5, or excuse me, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, 
that the saints around God's throne have our prayers like nuggets of incense. I can see the role of the intercession of the saints around God's throne in that uh, book. And also the role of the angels in chapter 8, verse 3. They take our prayers and they pray for us and intercede for us. number of things. So there's plenty to learn, but what you don't understand is that that's fine. I'll just go on to the parts I do get. Okay? You may also want to take a look at um, some of the commentaries on the book of Revelation, um, but try to get, make sure you get some of the better quality ones. Okay? All right, then we also hear from Joni. Father Paco, I'm striving to listen during my prayer time and I'm using scripture as a starting point for prayer, but I'm finding it difficult to quiet myself and just let the Lord speak to me. Do you have any suggestions, Joni? You know, sometimes we need, you know, pay attention to what the distractions are. You may need to do that. And take a look and say, Lord, just tell the Lord, Lord, I'm distracted by this thought. And bring that distraction to our Lord. Sometimes I need to do that. Because it may be that I need to repent of something. For instance, if um, something that a person may have said to me still sticks in my craw and bothers me, then I may need to repent of my anger. If some other uh, uh, say, a, a project that you have bothers you, you have to ask, why am I having trouble with that project? You, and bring that to the Lord, whether it's something that you are concerned about, say, the sickness of somebody. You may say, you know, uh, if you have a relative who's near and dear to you and is ill, Lord, I, I keep thinking about their illness, and I don't know what to do. Well then bring that to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to do for this person? Bring the distraction into your prayer. Whether it's sin, whether it's some task, whether it's some anxiety, whatever it might be, bring that to our Lord and ask him, Lord, what do you want me to do to avoid the sin? to help accomplish this task? Or do you want me to accomplish it? Maybe you don't. Maybe you want me to cut it out. Or something else like that. That would be one of my suggestions. And then as you start to find that it calms down, as you bring the distraction to him prayerfully, then you can go back to the scripture and listen in a different way. Okay? That'd be one way to handle it. Father Mitch, this is from Christopher. Father Mitch, my cousin's son is an atheist and he does not want to baptize his daughter. The priest told my cousin he had to get permission from at least one of his grandchild's parents in order to have the baptism performed. I thought the church was more concerned with the salvation of the child. Please ex explain, Christopher. Christopher, that's exactly why 
we don't want to baptize if neither parent will make the commitment to raise the child according to the law of Christ and the church. Um, I assume you've been to baptisms. And at the baptism, the priest asks the parents, will you raise this child in accord with the law of Christ and his church? The atheist parent refuses to do that, I'm sure. He probably doesn't believe that the law of Christ or the church is worth teaching his child. And if that's the case, how is this child going to grow into the graces of baptism? However, if the other parent says, look, I will raise this child to be a good Catholic, and I will raise them in the faith, then that's enough. You can take, then you can baptize the child. But if they refuse, and especially if, in the case of the atheist, they may very well be committed to trying to talk the child out of faith in God and neglect God, then you're putting the child's soul at risk. They, they won't have a chance to learn about how you live our faith. And you, you don't want to do that. Um, pray for that parent and perhaps the other one too. And pray for that child that you can do. And find different ways that you give them toys, at least when they're at grandma and grandpa's house. Okay? When they're at the grandparents' house, give them videos that are Christian in orientation. Let, you know, let them ha ha read Christian books. They're little books for children. Read Bible stories to them. And, you know, then as they ask questions, well, Daddy says the Bible isn't true. All right? You learn how to answer at that child's level to still show respect for his daddy, but at the same time answer those objections but you can't baptize, except in the case of danger of death. If there's immediate danger of death, all bets are off, baptize them. But uh, otherwise, we're not going to do that to them, okay? All right, we'll take a break and come back with more of your questions. Please stay with us. Welcome back. And again, we're doing a mailbag show. Uh, and of course, if you have some questions and comments, you can send them to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com. And we'll try to take a look at them. 
we have another email from Susanna about her relatives. They fell away. Okay, so here we go. Hi, hello, Father Mitch. My cousin, a fallen away Catholic, see, I told you, the same lady, uses the reasoning that confession is not needed since once you're saved, you're always saved. He says there is no scriptural evidence of purgatory. Yes, there is a reference made to a place of cleansing, but the word purgatory is never used. When did the word purgatory first appear? Susanna. All right, all right. First of all, your cousins sound like specious thinkers. They're not very deep, and this is too bad. They need to think through these issues more deeply. For, now, I don't know what they believe in their fallen away state. Do they believe in the Blessed Trinity, that God is three persons and one God? Ask them that. And if so, good. But they also have to remember that the word Trinity is not in the Bible. It was a word invented later to explain the teaching of the Bible, that there's only one God, but there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who share the same divine nature. Okay? and that they're equally God, co-equal to each other, and not subordinate or anything like that. Those are, uh, that's a term that came up in the early church, and this is very important. And you also need to remind them uh, about the importance of the tradition, uh, because as I mentioned in a debate, that I did when, back in 95, when the interlocutor said to me, can you show me anything in the Catholic tradition that is not already in the Bible? And I smiled and looked at the audience and said, yes, the table of contents. No book of the Bible tells you which books belong in the Bible. It's not there. How do you know it? From the church. By the way, from the Catholic Church. And so this is how you know what goes in the Bible. And the term purgatory is not in the Bible, but it also it explains the teachings in the Bible. For instance, St. Peter, in his first epistle, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, speaks about the souls that are in the prison and that Jesus' Spirit descended down to them and preached to them so that they could come to heaven. This is not the hell of damnation. This is another place. It's not heaven, because nobody could go to heaven until Christ opened the gates. But it's not the place of damnation, called Gehenna in the New Testament, usually, that uh, were Tartarus, uh, as you see in, I believe, the book of Jude, um, and in Second Peter. Uh, so, you know, it's not that, it's not the place of condemnation, 
but it's not heaven. It's in between. It's called purgatory in order to indicate that it's a place of cleansing of the remaining aspects of sin or of unconfessed uh, venial sin. And uh, they may even try to say, well, we don't believe in the difference between mortal sin and venial sin. Well, then you don't believe in the Bible. Because in the first letter of St. John, chapter 5, he distinguishes between mortal sin and non-mortal sin. He doesn't use the word venial. That's a Latin word, venia, that comes from smaller offenses. So they used a Latin word for it. But he does say mortal sin and not mortal, or sometimes translations will say deadly and not deadly. But deadly is the Anglo-Saxon for mortal. Mortal is a Latin word. Deadly is an Anglo-Saxon word, uh, just like in German, totlich. Um, so that's where that comes from. So you're, that's one of the things there. And first, and then, pay attention, Susanna. You especially, I'm pointing my finger at you, Susanna. You need to read your Bible more and more yourself. And you will notice no passage in the Bible says, once you're saved, you're always saved. Nor was that taught by the church. It was something invented in the 16th century. This is a late tradition of men. The Bible never says, once you're saved, you're always saved. It's not there. You won't find it, just like you won't find which books belong in the Bible. So what I'm going to suggest to you, Susanna, because you have a lot of good questions that come from your relatives, but you need to read a good apologetics books. Um, you, you might take a look at books like uh, from the 1930s, Radio Replies. It's in three volumes, and it's short questions like you ask and the answers. And you know what you're going to find? The same questions you hear from their, your relatives were being asked of these two priests back in the 1930s. The questions haven't changed. They have the same problem because they have the same poor principles, like you use the Bible alone. The Bible doesn't teach that you use the Bible alone. It's not in the Bible to say that. The Bible teaches in first, in, excuse me, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, hold on to the traditions that I left you, whether by word or by letter. So the oral and written tradition is what we're supposed to have. That's what the Bible says. And you have to do this work. You also might take a look at Fundamentalism and Catholicism by Carl Keating, a wonderful book. And he's also got a very, very good bibliography. And there are a number of other things. Your relatives have gone off the rails. And I blame mostly the catechists and the religious teachers and the priests for not 
teaching people how to defend our Catholic faith. They haven't done that over the last 60 years. And the shame for that belongs to the teachers who did not do that. And so that, you know, it's not all, I don't blame your relatives. They're, they're convinced by people who feel very convinced and are enthusiastic, but not correct. So you have to do, not just asking me, you know, I don't, I can't always be the Google. <laughs> you have to find, you have to do this apology, and I guarantee you this, you will end up learning a lot more yourself. These questions they raise, don't let them scare you. We've answered them over the centuries, and we can still answer them. They're good answers for all of them, but you got to do some homework. All of us do, and take these issues on. All right, let's take another email here. This is from Connie. Dear Father Paco, I've always been led to believe that the story of the prodigal son was an illustration of God's great forgiveness, which we in turn should emulate. Lately, however, I find myself most upset at the actions of the father. He seems to have shown little wisdom in bestowing a share of the inheritance on the younger boy. Perhaps even worse, he shows less than sensible enthusiasm in planning a celebration for the younger son's return. Isn't this story less than beneficial for the young people of our day and time? Connie. Well, now let's take a look at that. Um, pretty strong criticism of our Lord uh, in this. Keep in mind the context. Always look at context in Scripture. The context is that the Pharisees and scribes are criticizing Jesus at the beginning, the opening verse of Luke 15, and saying he eats with sinners and publicans. And our Lord gives three parables. First, about the lost sheep and then the lost coin, saying how the angels rejoice when a sinner repents. And then he illustrates with the second, or the third parable, I should say, that not only does God, the, the angels rejoice, but God the Father rejoices when a sinner repents. The kid hasn't come in demanding, you know, uh, that sometimes our young people might come in there saying, you owe me, you got to take care of me now. Uh, sure, I made a mess, but you got to do something. You know, he's saying, look, just make me one of your servants. I'll just work here for you because I don't deserve anything. He's humble. He's repentant. He's experienced the suffering that sin causes him. And the father rejoices to welcome him back to the family. Doesn't give him his inheritance, but he welcomes him. And we as sinners, will be welcomed in the same way by God the Father if we're repentant of our sins and come to the judgment with, with true humility and repentance and faith. But then also it's directed to the older brother who's acting like the Pharisees. That's the purpose of that parable. 
to give an instruction that the Pharisees not be so mean to the repentant sinners. Our Lord came to call them, and that's what He does there, okay? And um, here, one, I think we have time for a real quick one. Why did Our Lady of Guadalupe ask for a chapel to be built in her honor, not Our Lord's? I know many parishes dedicated their churches to saints, but I never thought of the question of why. Is it because of their ability to intercede on our behalf? Carlos in Anthony, New Mexico. Carlos, there are two things. You're right. There is this sense of uh, interceding for us that they do. They pray for us in heaven, as I mentioned earlier in Revelation 5, verse 8, and chapter 8, verse 3. But also, notice, and this is a key part, the Blessed Mother has the same skin tone as the Native Americans of Mexico. She looks like one of them, and she wants to let them know that God loves them as they are. You don't have to be European to be a good Christian. He loves them in their culture, wearing their kind of clothes, and with their customs and their facial looks. So that's why it's dedicated to her, to evangelize. And in fact, tens of millions became Catholic as a result of that. Well, thank you very much for joining me in this, and may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you to give you His wisdom, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill so we can pay our bills too. Thank you.